Good morning and welcome to the Morning Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Camp, coming to you as always from the Spotlight Studios in Morristown, New Jersey. I've got another great guest. That's all we have on this show, our great guests. So our guest today is a retired Air Force officer, an entrepreneur, a real estate investor, and the founder of Ideal Wealth Grower, Axel Meyerhofer. Axel, welcome. Yeah. Hey, Michael. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you on. Um, so let's, uh, let's learn a little bit more about you. Um, so you're a real estate investor, you're an entrepreneur, uh, retired Air Force officer. Take us through some of that stuff. So how, how'd you get yourself to here sitting with me on my show, basically? Right. Yeah. Well, in a nutshell, um, as you said, I was in the Air Force as an officer. And one of the things that comes with that is you're being moved around quite a bit uh, from different location to a location. And I had from my early upbringing, always thought it would be a good idea in most cases, if you can somehow swing it to purchase a property rather than rent a property, you know? And so that was always the goal. But then on the flip side, every so often when we were actually being moved around, it wasn't always the ideal time to sell a property because markets go up and down and the military doesn't necessarily look at, is it opportune for your real estate to be sold right now or not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? So they move you for other reasons. And so we ended up in a situation several times where it wouldn't have really made much sense. So we kept the house, got another house, which is a beautiful thing with the VA at the time. You know, you can get VA loans and stuff like that, no down payment, all those kind of things. But what it actually did is ultimately it got me into this whole idea of how do you actually manage your real estate? Not, I don't mean in a physical property management way, but like you having properties Sometimes we had two or three, then we sold one because the market was better and stuff like that. And then when I retired, I started a consulting business. And besides this sensitivity to, okay, how should I actually manage my properties? I also became aware that as a business owner, you don't really have a retirement plan. Right. right? And so I asked myself, okay, what, what would I do? What would make sense for a retirement plan? And I got into a couple of different areas that all said, real estate, which we already had kind of dabbled into. So I guess there was a certain bias, but right. it also indicated um, real estate would be a good way if you could actually grow a portfolio. And so I did this since I started my business, my own business in 2005, kind of like just for the family, just for ourselves, just to develop a, a passive income through real estate. And a couple of years ago, we did a pretty significant 1031 exchange because we had from one of, from this moving around one property in the Santa Barbara area that had really increased a lot in value, but it never really performed as, as we would have liked to. So when the market kept going up, I thought, okay, this is really the time, right? right now is the so time. I pulled yeah. the trigger, did the exchange and told other people about it. And um, they said, wow, I didn't even know this is possible. And how did you do it? And with this many properties and so forth and so forth. And ultimately from that came well, maybe you can tell other people that they can do something like that as well, especially when people realize that we live in California, but all our properties are out of state. And that was something a lot of people said, I didn't even know that you could do that, right? And right. so that's how we grew the portfolio. And ultimately, I said, okay, to educate other people and give them information if they're interested, or maybe mentor them, make my relationships to lenders, insurers, attorney providers, and so forth available. I just start something a little bit more formal and that's how idealwealthgrower.com and, and the whole site and the, all that stuff came together. Right. So how long were you in the Air Force for? 22 years. It's been wow. a while, but I was in for 22 years. Yes. That's, that's a long time. 
Um, so, uh, so, and then you were moving around, like you said, so where, where were you bouncing around to, um, you know, throughout the United States, I'm assuming. Well, I mean, the thing about it is I'm probably a very unique, um, case, let's put it this way <laughs> in a neutral sense, because I actually initially joined the German air force and was stationed in Europe in different locations, first in Germany and, uh, in, in Sardinia, for example, and a short time in, in Spain. And then from the normal kind of evolution, I got into test flying and all the little black, black boxes that go into these modern planes, or most of them, at least in the NATO environment, are made by typically by American companies. Okay. So when you're in test flying and a new system is supposed to be integrated, they send you to the company to get training so that you, as one of the first people who can actually test it in a real plane, know how it works and what the engineers came up with. So we came to the U.S. a bunch of times, and my wife at the time said, uh, do you think it would be possible to stay longer than just four or five weeks for a training? And I looked into that and found out that there was actually something, and I think it still exists. It's an uh, officer exchange program where you literally you take off your everything you have and you basically join the other service. So I became basically as a German Air Force officer, the assistant director of operation of a fighter wing on the U.S. Air Force side. Okay. And um, from there, a couple of things happened that would probably take too long to go into details. But normally this kind of deal is meant to be like maybe two years or two and a half years. And right. in my case, due to the circumstances, I had spent probably about at the time 12, maybe close to 13 years on the German side and then came over, became a U.S. Air Force officer. And then these other things all happened. I spent basically seven years on the U.S. side. Gotcha. At, at the very end, when I retired, the question was actually, is my pension going to be paid by the U.S. Air Force or by the <laughs> German Air Force? But I had a little more on the German side, so they're paying uh, the, the military pension, which is a tiny amount if, if you don't stay until you're like 50 or 60 or something, right? But right. Still a little bit. And so, yeah, I'm in this kind of unique case where I've bought a little more than half of my time in the German military and the other half in the U.S. military. So properties, to answer your question, we were had a property in Clovis, New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, like I mentioned, Santa Barbara area, and then here in the San Diego area. So those were like locations here in the U.S. And then we also had uh, two properties in Germany okay. before we came over here. A little international real estate investor over here. <laughs> yeah, um, unintentionally, but yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Do you ever fly it? Like what, what was like the coolest thing you flew? Um, I would no, say- We're going to get into, uh, we're going to get into real estate eventually. I've just, yeah, 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 now yeah, I'm just right. so invested uh, in this. It's actually two different things I would mention. The one thing uh, was um, flying with the Tornado, which is a European-made plane, and that had what's called terrain-following radar, right? Like nowadays, a lot of people talk about Tesla and autonomous driving and stuff like that. Yeah. So, and you have to think about, this is like mm, probably about like 1995. We had a system that you could engage the autopilot at 200 feet above ground at a fighter jet speed at night and fly matching the contours of the terrain. And since so after cool. my test flight time, I became an instructor. That always freaked out the students, you know? Like, <laughs> I mean, it, it would freak me out. Just the idea of it would freak me out. <laughs> right. Fighter jet speed and yeah. just, you know, going like this the whole time. Yeah, we were going about um, um, 10 miles a minute and um, at 200 feet above the ground. 
So yeah. that's, that's pretty freaky. The other cool thing that I was allowed to do is um, the Congress at some point decided that the F-111 was too expensive a plane to maintain. And so in the last like six months when that plane was still in service, we were asked to deliver a lot of the um, weapons that were specifically only made for that plane because you couldn't transfer them over to any other plane. And in the context of that, there was one specific thing where you would fly a maneuver that gets you extremely high into the atmosphere. So we topped out, I, I don't want to waste too much time on it, but we topped out at about 57,000 feet, wow. right, which is really high, which in, in <laughs> I think when you said what was one of the coolest things, it's, it's partially the plane. Yeah. But it's also just being that high, you actually literally see the curvature of the earth, the, how thin the atmosphere is, and the plane starts behaving kind of like sluggish. Yeah. And, and one thing that I remember from the briefing that blew me away is the cone, the, the tip of the plane itself was made out of a composite material. And you had to limit the maximum speed coming down from this high altitude to not overheat that composite material in the nose because of the friction that yeah. it would create as you get lower and lower into the into the atmosphere, the friction gets higher and higher and it basically starts heating up. And right. in my mind, I still have this picture of if, what would happen if you ever would, went too fast and that, that nose- just burst into just, flames, yeah. <laughs> well, or just like disintegrate or something. Yeah, right, so, yeah. But those things, you know, being that high, and, and I oftentimes still marvel about these pictures they show from the ISS and stuff like that, right? Astronauts up there or a rocket, um, like a SpaceX rocket ascending, and you see these pictures nowadays with the cool cameras they have on. And it, each and every single time literally reminds me of that particular flight where we were as high as I've ever gone. <laughs> yeah, know? right. Very cool. All right. So we'll get into, now we're going to get into what you actually came on here to, to talk about. Cause I, I mean, I actually didn't know about the air force thing until I was reading uh, more of more on your bio and stuff. Right. And I just had to, I had to ask. Oh, yeah, so, totally. um, and uh, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So um, real estate. So let's talk about uh, you know, you mentioned that you were moving around quite a bit, kind of picking up properties almost as you went uh, and got moved around. Yeah. Um, so then you make this transition into investing in real estate as a career. Um, so take us through like uh, the types of investments that you, uh, that you make and like how you set them up and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Like, so one thing that happened is towards the end of my career, we got more into um, places that are inherently more expensive. I mentioned we ended up from one of my very last assignments with a house in the Santa Barbara area. We now live in the San Diego area and California, or you could basically say almost up and down the coast. What, what you find is, and, and this is a little bit my German heritage, I look at a lot of things from an evidence and data-based um, view, which when I really started to get into real estate investing for, for a serious thing, not just as something that happened kind of coincidentally, one of the terms that I don't hear that often, and I think that would be probably very interesting for your audience is the term performance. So I looked at it as to say, okay, when I make an investment and, and you find this for stock market stuff all the time, but not so much and not so often in real estate, 
for me to say, okay, when people talk about the performance of their stock investments, it's totally clear to everybody, but on, on real estate as an investment, it's not that often heard, or it's only talked about in the context of how much did it increase in value? I bought it for this and I sold it for that. So for me, performance, and this is really one of the criteria um, to get into this is, I want to apply what's called the 1% rule which means if I buy a $100,000 property, I'm making $1,000 rent a month. And when you try to do this in California, like in our area here around San Diego, you don't really find anything reasonable as a property, uh, single family uh, property, like three bedroom, two baths or anything like that, below five to 600,000. So that would mean you would actually have to get somewhere between five and $6,000 in rent per month and, and nobody is paying that. Uh, just because mainly because there are not that many people who could afford it, you would have to have like $15,000 income per month or something, right? Right. So the performance isn't there. So I looked at what can I do to have performance at that or even a better level. And I learned that it is very important not to just look at that number because you could lower your criteria of where the property is, how downrun it is, how how high crime rates are and, and all of that, and then ultimately work your way to 1% or maybe 2%. But as soon as you say, I want a nice, highly freshly renovated property in a nice area with good economic balance, with low crime rates, with all these additional points, then it gets harder and harder. And what I found is right now at least, um, the number of places in the country that, that offer that is gotten smaller and smaller or less and less you might say and most of our properties are now in the midwest because that balance between meeting the one percent rule and having all these other criteria still met um, there aren't that many places anymore so we have uh, some properties in ohio in idaho in illinois in um, um, places like that and we're looking right now into alabama so that's basically the main thing is to answer your question, how do we get started is by saying, okay, where can we find performance? Great. Okay. So then, you know, you find a property that, you know, it fits your criteria. Um, how do you go about, you know, cause you're in, like you said, you're in the San Diego area. And if you're going to buy a property in Alabama, like you said, I mean, how do you, how do you make that work? I mean, cause you have like right. boots on the ground there. Do you have, you know, do you actually go out and see the property yourself? Yeah, so what, what I found out is um, uh, I looked into um, different options. Uh, you know, could I work with an agent? Could I find a property management company? And through my military history that we went through earlier, I always was initially in the area. And then when we left, they were already established. They knew me. I had personal relationships. Now, when we went into this more investing stuff, I didn't know anybody in these places. And ultimately, right. I decided... And I've always operated this way as a military officer, as a business owner now for Idea West Grower. Everything is really revolving around the quality of relates. And so what I decided is, and what I'm offering through Idea West Grower as mentorship and relationship um, referrals basically is to use turnkey providers. So the turnkey provider is a company that actually identifies a property, renovates it, and then manages it after they sold it to you or to me in this case and or to anybody in your audience. And, and that is basically for one, a good thing because I only really work with a handful, like five turnkey providers and I vet them against a whole bunch of criteria. And then it's similar to what I had before these kind of trusting relationships, but there's also something, if you're interested that we can touch on why 
what are the criteria to find these providers yeah. and why does it work versus there are hundreds yeah. or 20 providers that don't work. You right, know? right. Yeah, what, what, what are some of the stuff that you look for? Well, the thing about it is what you find when you just fundamentally go out into the market and say, I would be willing to work with a turnkey provider, this term turnkey, what it originally should mean and what it means for me is somebody finds a property in the market that they are really familiar with. They have a crew that renovates this property. Then they put it out for a fair price so that they still make a little bit of money on it, but not outrageous. And then as soon as they sold it to an investor, they, their own team is managing that property on behalf of the investor. And what that does when you do it that way, and those are the only turnkey providers we work with, when they screw something up in the renovation, then you can be assured that when the tenant moves in, like I buy it and then the tenant moves in, two months, three months, four months later, that lack of quality will show up. Right? So in my criteria, part of it is that the turnkey provider has to guarantee their work for one year and they have to guarantee the rental income for one year. So as property managers, they need to do a good job selecting suitable tenants. And as the renovation organization that originally renovated the property, they need to make a good job renovating with good quality because otherwise they have to pay for anything that needs to be fixed that they didn't do right during the renovation. And when you apply those criteria, you will find a lot of so-called turnkey providers. They find the property renovated, sell it to you, but they're not managing it. Or they have properties that somebody flipped or renovated. So they bought the property, they mark it up a little bit, sell it to you and then manage it. Or they only have a management and then you can choose from all the properties in the area. And when you find one, then they manage it for you. And they say, well, the turnkey is we find you the title company, we find you the lender, we manage it for you. So the interpretation and definition of what they call turnkey versus what I call turnkey is quite different, but it's important to have these dependencies. I call that a virtuous triangle. I as the investor want to be a winner because I buy a property that is reasonably valued and that meets the 1% rule. The turnkey provider, as long as they are on the renovation side, have every incentive to do a good renovation and then get a fair price to make a first little profit for that part of the deal. And then they need to also be good in the property management because that benefits the tenant. No tenant wants to be in a property where constantly something breaks because the renovation was done at kind of mediocre, right. right? So the tenant wins because they get a nice, freshly smelling like a new car property that they move into and they get high quality because the turnkey provider would be kind of quote unquote stupid not to put high quality because then they have to pay in the first year for everything that goes wrong. So those three parties, the tenant is a winner because they get a nice property. The turnkey provider is a winner because they first make money on the sale and then they make money on the management. And I'm the winner because it's really, really hands off. And all I do is spending a few hours a month across like 10 properties to make check in and see that everything is working as it should. Right, right. Okay, so you have properties, you know, uh, all over right now. H how many are currently in your portfolio? Uh, we have a total of 10. Okay, cool. Awesome. All right. So I want to get into, um, you know, ideal wealth grower and how 
basically you've used your experiences from the real estate investment side. And I'm sure part of it is, you know, your background in the military and all that kind of stuff. Um, take us through like how ideal wealth grower works and, and what you try to help people with. Right. Yeah. So one thing uh, it starts out with to say, I'm interested in residential real estate investing, but I don't really necessarily know exactly what to do yet. I just kind of start getting my feet wet. So what for that, I would recommend to, you know, look into our YouTube channel, read our articles, um, follow us on Instagram and so forth, because on that end, on that just providing valuable information, we're trying to put out you know, valuable content on a regular basis. Every day of the week, there's something new in this field coming out from us. The next level then is to say, okay, if I find that I'm a little bit like on the kind of scared side, I'm not really quite sure what to do if I'm really in the right frame of mind, my next recommendation, I offer this um, to, to your audience, go to ideawealthgrower.com forward slash free and download the mindset menu. And so the mindset menu goes through all the things that might make you a little queasy or not quite sure, is it the right thing for you? And really takes you through to identify where am I? Where do I wanna go? What are my goals? How do I go about it? And how can I get myself in the frame of mind so that it's an uh, energetic, a positive and exciting thing and not something to be afraid of. And what I've started recently that anybody can do now is I'm actually offering a video series on YouTube that you print out or take down the, the manual from the website. And then you can follow on step by step. We are at episode seven or something like that now that really explains every step in the manual. So again, idealwealthcore.com forward slash free. And then the next step would be to say, okay, so now I know I want to do this. I realize that even if I live in an expensive area, I can do this in other areas. I can find these. Now, how do I go about it? And that's where the mentoring comes in. And so people can go on the website and they can make uh, one or two decisions that we offer. One is to say um, you can get a mentoring package that explains all these things that we just briefly touched on today. And I introduce you to my connections because one thing in this whole game of real estate investing that I found is Ultimately, it comes down to relationships. So I work with a nationwide lender that helped me to get these 10 properties. So you can imagine if you were coming to me and say, Axel, help me, I would say, okay, let me introduce Michael to you guys on the lending side. They know they have 10 mortgages with me, right? So they treat me and you a little different. Right, same exactly. Thing for the insurance provider, same thing for these five turnkey companies. We work together on how to identify properties. So that is about a six, seven month program. Or you can say, I can see, and this is the ultimate goal that I always hope to uh, work with with our mentoring clients is to say, if you come on the, on the path, on the journey to reach what I call economic independence, then it's a longer term thing. And instead of saying, I want to charge you over and over and over and over for mentoring sessions, there's a one fixed lifetime package you can get that on our website and then, you know, you and I would be connected for however long we want to be. Naturally, the frequency is high at the beginning and it may be tapering off, but there's a one-time fee and, and then we're done. And so this, this then leads to economic independence. I define that at the point in the future where you have the freedom to decide if you still want to exchange time for money and go to work or if you want to do things that are not really money related, 
I will you say, I've always been passionate about art, but I know that it doesn't pay very well. Well, I want to help other people, but that is a more charity type of thing. Well, if you know, like in my case, that the money comes in from my properties every month, no matter what I do, then that's really that economic independence where you say, my economic needs are met by my passive income from real estate. So now I have the freedom to decide what I want to do. And if you love what you do, then keep doing it. Right. But having the freedom to make that decision is a totally different thing than being depending on having some source of income other than passive so that you can actually pay your bills and have your life and so forth. So that's ultimately for anybody who says, okay, I want to really change my life. I went through the mindset menu. Now I really want to get fully engaged in this. Then that would be the first major milestone is reach economic independence. And depending on where you start, how old you are, how many reserves you have, it can be done in like seven to eight years for most people that have very little um, yet. I would say about 12, 13 years. And, and, and it's a fun ride. It sounds maybe like a long time, but you have to keep in mind you're only doing it once. And then it's not just for you and for the rest of your life, but it's for your kids, for your family, for their kids and their family. That level of, of equity, those assets that you have, those 10 properties that I have, they're going to go over to my daughter, you know, at some point. And then she has every opportunity to turn them over to her kids. So you're not just building a passive income stream. You're really building a legacy. Right. Right. So how, so how do you get there? Like, so you, you talk about economic um, independence. Um, so how do you go like, you know, someone like me who I don't invest in real estate, I would like to one day probably. So how do I get from like where I am now taking that first step? You know, I go through the mentoring and all that kind of stuff. Like, like what are some of the first steps that I would have to make in order to get started on that path? Okay. And so what we do in the very early steps is to say, let's take a look at basically your balance sheet. What are all the things that you currently pay for? And on the other side, what is uh, currently an income coming in and any other things? Do you have a 401k? Do you have stocks? Do you have any other things where you could either have equity, meaning value in it, or you have a regular income? And so one thing that oftentimes occurs is when we really challenge the things that we currently pay for, I, like I, I'm the first to admit to myself, I didn't even pay attention. People were saying, you know, cable cutting is a good thing to do so i got hulu amazon prime and netflix and when i talked to somebody and saw the same thing and i said to that person hey frank do you really need all three and he said no i never even realized that i had all three then as soon as we finished that call i looked at myself and said man i have all three and i shouldn't have that right so (laughs) right right so really going through and saying okay what are the things that you're spending money on and is this smart and then also looking at where where do you have obligations right is it does it make sense to have a 600 dollars a month credit line for your car or credit cards that you're paying so we want to optimize first how is your balance sheet looking and then the next step is to say create what i call an accumulation account for two reasons, the things that you used to pay money for and don't anymore, like you settle on Netflix and that's it and you get rid of the other ones, those $15, $20 that may not sound like much, they shouldn't just go into your pocket, they should go into this accumulation account. And the second component is what I call pay yourself first or the 10% rule, which means any money that comes in on the other side of that balance sheet, 10% at the moment it comes in, should go into the accumulation account. 
Now, Dave Ramsey says when you're young, like under 30, you should actually do 15%, right? So that's debatable, but I say at least 10%. And the goal, and this is the important part when you're looking at what's my mindset is, I try to convey to people that the goal is as quickly as possible to get somewhere between 16 to 20,000 in this accumulation account. Now, if you have a spouse, a wife, or a partner or stuff like that, then that would count for both of you together because that's around the amount of money that you need to get an $80,000, $90,000, $100,000 first investment that meets all those criteria we touched on before. Right. And that's really, really important. And I hope this is also for your audience. A lot of people think, oh, I need $50,000, $100,000, $150,000 before I can ever really do anything in real estate. But keep in mind, 80% of the money comes from the bank and only 20% of the money comes from you. So if you buy an $80,000, $85,000 property, your own part is $16,000, $17,000. The rest is other people's money, the bank's money. <laughs> right. It's always so, good to use other people's money. That, that's right, always yeah, great. Exactly. Well, the, uh, so that's on the front end, right? If your goal is manageable, it's achievable. I mean, if you say um, you have two people and they somehow through like balance sheet and other stuff can do $1,000 a month. In 16 to 18 months, you're ready for your first property. If you have nothing right now, in 16 to 18 months, you can have your first property, right? And keep in mind, we only buy properties that are cash flow positive, meaning like they have money left over at the end of every month, even after the mortgage and insurance and everything is paid. Right. So now you're getting two, three, four hundred dollars from that first property that also gets, it goes into your accumulation account. So it's not going to be another 16, 18 months until you do the next one. It's probably maybe like 11 or 12 months for number two. And then it may be nine months for number three. And then you can get to a point where you buy two a year or even three a year. Right. Right? So when you say, how do I ever get to 10, 15, 20 properties? It's a matter of getting started and it's a reasonable amount. And then it accelerates from there. And ultimately, the number of how many properties are we talking about is really dependent on how do you define your economic independence number? If right. you say, I live in an area where I believe I need $4,000 a month to conveniently pay everything that occurs in my life or my bills and stuff like that. Well, if you make, let's say, $300 on average from the properties that you own, then that's basically somewhere around 12 properties, 12 to 13 properties, and you're at your 4000 right? If you need either more or you get $400 per property, which some people say, well, how can it be this different? Right now we're living in this awesome area or time where mortgage rates are so low, but rents have not really come down. Actually the opposite, rents have been increasing. So the difference between the insurance, the mortgage and the property tax versus how much rent you can get has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. So I have more than 300, 350, sometimes $400 positive cash flow now for brand new properties where a couple of years ago it was maybe $200. Right. Right. So all that together, if you really think about it, is don't look so much at $5,000 a month, 20 properties, a million and a half in equity. That's great for the vision. But for the immediate, when you say, how do I actually get into uh, residential real estate investing is, let's review your balance sheet. Let's identify the areas where you can from already existing money, put some of it into your accumulation account. Then number two, pay yourself first 10% on anything. Number three, is there anything that you could do that could maybe increase your income side? 
like any kind of gig or anything that you could do, put that into your accumulation account and then don't look at massive amounts in the future. Look at the 16, 17, 18,000 that you're working towards. Right. Because then when you see, you know, your account three months in has $4,000, a couple more months in has $7,000, you can literally count the months until you're ready for your first purchase. Right. And we help you naturally to all the steps, including how to find properties that turnkey providers offer. Now, people that work with me have one big benefit due to these relationships that I have. Turnkey providers tell me we have a property that fits your criteria coming up. And there's always the choice, either I can take it if I'm looking for an, another one to add to my portfolio or any one of my mentoring clients who is getting ready can take it and they basically benefit immediately from the existing relationship. Because no turnkey provider we work with would want to screw up that relationship because you know we have multiple properties with that. Yeah, right. They would lose all that business. So yeah. um, what? Um, th- so there has to be some risks, right, in, in doing this stuff. I mean, there's risks in everything. Like, what are some risks that you see from like this type of real estate investing, maybe from your experiences, I guess? Uh, well, the, there are the biggest risks uh, on first glance, first off, when when you ask that question, would be that you make the decision, which everybody is free. I'm not, I would never force anybody to work with a particular turnkey provider or anything like that, um, that you either say, okay, I find my own turnkey provider or go one step further and say, I do this on my own because it's kind of like jumping in a, in a shark infested um, pond. And yes, you may survive, depends on how you actually look like when you come out again, <laughs> but that's the biggest risk, right? There is, and I'm not saying this to brag, but I mean, you, you're running this for a while already and have had plenty of guests and, and different perspectives. There's a lot to learn and a lot of that stuff that needs to be learned is kind of hidden in the details. Right? If, if I give somebody, and I'm sure lots of your audience members have bought houses for themselves. Right. If I were to say, okay, let's sit down and look at your closing statement for your own house that you bought and go up through in detail, and you tell me if you're really aware of all the things that are in there, let alone doing this for an investment property, right? But there are risks, for example, if you don't have anybody who helps you, that they basically put in a clause that says unpaid property tax is the um, duty or task of the buyer, right? right? So they, and, and depending, and I know this from some Midwest states where I got like the 2019 property tax bill in March of 2020 for the whole year. Yeah. Now I make sure when I deal with title companies that the seller made sure that everything is up to speed up to the day that I buy on taxes, but they don't have to. And if they have a smart seller, they say, well, why don't we let the buyer pay for that? So you thought you bought a beautiful 80, 90, $100,000 property. And a month later, you get a bill for several thousand dollars for unpaid property tax, that kind of stuff, right? So those are some of the risks is if you don't work with well-established, really well-vetted partners, then either you have educated yourself for all these details, or you better have somebody on your side who can make you aware of all the things that could happen. Right. And, and, and there's plenty, I mean, another quick example, and then I mean, we could go on for hours, but another quick yeah. example is insurance, right? We are all aware, we see the commercials, Geico and Farmers and State Farm, and I'm, you know, I'm mentioning them just because they're familiar, I have no dealings with them. But the problem is, as an investor, 
And you really say, when would I go to an insurance company that to repair something? Would have to have a major thing, like a major um, failure of the property. How likely is that for something that has basically been completely renovated from the ground up when you buy it? So what you want as an investor, as an insurance policy, yes, it's required. Your lender requires it, but you want to have as high a deductible as possible. Most of these really big um, uh, insurers only allow you to go down to $2,500. We work with one that allows us to go down to $5,000. Because if it is something that was not caught by the renovation, then it's the responsibility of the people who renovated it because I have a written warranty, right? So why would I pay a policy that is way more expensive if I don't have to because it makes no sense? And think about it. That policy is more expensive, and what does it do? It takes away from your positive cash flow. Right. Right. So the more you can get a good balance, balance is the biggest thing in this game. It's a good balance between your relationship to the title company, your relationship to the lender, your relationship to the insurance company, where we say, yes, we all want to live and we all want to make a profit, but it needs to be fair. It needs to make sense. Yep. Not just because you're a multi-billion dollar insurer, you just don't allow any policy to go any further down than 2,500 deductible. Right. And so those are some of the risks. And if you try to do it on your own, you either have to be willing to spend the time to learn the stuff, or you need to be willing to take the risks that come with not knowing it and then just hoping that stuff works out. Right. Gotcha. Okay. So, all right. So the, one of the things that I thought was interesting when we did our introductory phone call um, was just the, the mindset side of this. Right. Um, and, you know, we talked about a lot of the, the technical stuff. Uh, we kind of got that out of the way, I guess, and, you know, how people can actually do it. But like, obviously it takes a big, you know, uh, there's, there's that commitment level. And, and I know looking short-term is obviously a lot better than looking at the, the big picture. It's like, you know, if you're going to eat an elephant, you got to start like one bite right. at a time. You can't eat the whole elephant all at once. Um, right. So take us through some of the stuff that you help people as from a, from a mindset standpoint. Well, one of the things that I find, and I'm a little sad about it, to, to be honest, but what I oftentimes find when I talk with people, even way before they ever decide to work with us or, or get into mentoring or stuff like that, is that when you listen to them describing what they have done with their money and what they're maybe doing with their money or what goes on in their life or how their work is working or any of those kind of things, it sounds like the description of a victim. I'm basically the victim of my circumstances, the victim of my choices. I'm basically in this situation because of all these external influences. And what I'm trying to get across to people is to say, even though that might be what you're saying, and you may not even be that aware that that is what you're basically saying, but if I had to boil it down, it oftentimes sounds like a victim behavior. And what I want to get people into is what I call a creator mindset. I'm creating my own future. I'm creating the investments, not, not by building them myself, but deciding which ones do I want to go in. I'm creating this economic independence number because I have educated myself to find out what should it be. And if you say right now I live um, somewhere like, let's say, in Mississippi, but I really want to live in Florida, but then you should know how much does it cost to live in Florida, and then that determines your number. But the creator mindset gets you into a positive frame of mind and into positive energy to say, okay, I create my future. The first thing I need to create is a good balance sheet. The next thing I need to create is an accumulation account. 
the next thing I need to create is some knowledge that I can get either through what Idea Rescuer does or others and your podcasts and so forth to educate myself and get better. So I'm creating basically the knowledge, the confidence, the energy, the positivity, all those kind of things so that I actually feel I'm part of the journey. I really have influence. And ultimately, when, when you ask me, why do you do residential real estate investing? I would say, because I like to have control over the stuff that I own, right. rather than putting money in a 401k plan and then some mutual fund advisor somewhere is somehow doing something with my money and I don't even understand what's going on, right? So getting yourself into this mindset of the creator, of your own path, of your own journey, of your own results, that is the first biggest step to take. And it's not just you flip a switch and suddenly you are a creator. It's some work that you need to do and some, some steps you need to go through. And that's what, what I'm helping people with. Right. And then, so, I mean, I'm assuming that if people are coming to you, um, that that's like a good first step, you know, cause like you're moving yourself in the direction of, of, uh, going down this path. Um, do people ever, you know, kind of get to a point where they kind of, uh, like there's a frustration sets in, I guess, early on, because, you know, we're talking about, you know, the first steps and getting yourself started and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I know it might take a little while for that second property to come and the third property to come and eventually reach that economic independence that you talk about. Do people ever just say like, this isn't for me, like, I, I can't, I can't do this, you know, and then you kind of help them through that? Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of interesting, because it, it's almost like uh, black and white. First, a lot of people feel almost like they're being accused for not having accomplished what they really desire. And they get into somewhat of a little bit of a defensive posture, right? Where they say, well, but there is this reason why this hasn't happened, or there's another reason. And I, I felt this car needed to happen, or I thought I needed to haul stuff all the time. And this credit card debt that I have there is because of these 12 good reasons and stuff like that. So it's almost like constantly defending, which goes into this direction of the victim mindset. And what I'm in that phase, oftentimes, I'm almost like the cheerleader, almost like to say, don't worry about it. It's not really that important why it happened. It's more important. What can we do about it to turn it into something positive? And then after a while, when we get actually into this creator, energetic, positive energy mindset, and especially when people have uh, purchased the first or second property, it's almost like a little bit like an addiction then I have to start reining them in. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> going too fast suddenly, at that point. Yeah, suddenly they want to, you know, oh, when can I get the next one? And I thought about it, wouldn't it be smarter if I go into multifamily or should I basically do storage units? And just so you know, Mike, I'm never telling people you have to do what I say or you have to only do this one thing. Right. I'm trying to make educate them to make informed decisions. Um, but this is sometimes, you know, also another important component to consider is, People, if you look in the world in general and say, okay, what makes people successful? Why is everybody admiring people like Warren Buffett or, or Bezos or Elon Musk or these kind of people? And I think the one common denominator is that they decided something for themselves, knowing that it's going to take a while, and then they state the course. And that's kind of what I try to do because I believe it's easier to stay the course, even if I'm guiding a little bit on a particular direction when you have somebody to do it together with rather than having to do it yourself. And I mean, we have all been there. People said rockets can never land when they have been shot into the air and now they land. Right. People have said, you know, 
selling books is dead. Amazon will never be a company. Well, look what happened to that, right? Yeah. So on, there's a lot of examples. People said electric cars will never work. Well, you know, Tesla now is a more, the highest valued car company in the world or something like that, right? So when you look at not so much the result, but what did these people do consistently over quite periods of time, sometimes 10, 15, 20 years, is they made a decision and even though there were like ups and downs, lefts and rights, they stuck with the path. And that's why I say, you know, first you get to convince people this is kind of the skepticism to get on the path. And then when they actually start accelerating, you kind of have to yeah. over the reins a little, a little bit, bit so that they yeah. don't run too fast because the faster you run, the more dangerous it gets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, all right, cool. So I am, we're going to move the show into our closing segment. Um, we call yeah. it Under the Spotlight. Uh, we're going to, we basically the people that have been listening to this episode have been listening to us talk for the last 45 ish minutes. Um, what is, maybe we touched on it already and you just want to reemphasize that point. Maybe something that we missed that you want to bring up. Um, what is one thing that you want the listeners of this show to walk away with? Well, the one most important thing that I tell all my mentoring clients and also would love for your listeners to, to think through is you don't need to have huge amounts of money to get started. Think about fifteen dollars to $20,000 and what you can do by yourself or with help to get to that number from your accumulation account. And that allows you to become a real estate investor, not rich people stuff or so forth. So if you can take that away and maybe as a second or 1.5 thing is to say, get yourself into a creator's mindset in positive energy rather than the victim that is being influenced by all this negativity. So if you become a creator in your mind, naturally more than welcome to take the mindset manuals um, from our website for free. So get a positive mindset and become aware that the number, the initial step to become an investor is not massively big. It's somewhere between 15 and $20,000. Awesome. Great. Well, that was, that was awesome. So uh, that's going to wrap up our show for everybody listening. Um, all the stuff that Axel referenced, I am going to put all those links and everything in the show notes, the email addresses, the websites, um, the Instagram accounts, the LinkedIn stuff, everything will be in the show notes to make sure that if you are interested in, in ideal wealth grower and learning more, um, you go to the, use those resources that Axel has. Um, if you want to be a guest on the morning spotlight, or if you want to hear us talk about a specific topic on the show, make sure you go to the morning spotlight.com or email us at the morning spotlight at gmail.com. Uh, Axel, thank you again for coming on with us today. This was, this was great. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. I really, really appreciate it. And thanks for making the time and letting me be a guest on your show. Absolutely. And everybody else, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Just a reminder that any views expressed in the morning spotlight are the views of the speaker and should not be construed to be the views of any other person, any employer, or any organization. Thank you. We'll see you next week.